After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to another edition of the Baseball America Prospect Handbook Podcast. J.J. Cooper and Ben Badler with you as we are most every week. Thank you to our uh, sponsor, DraftDay.com. DraftDay.com is a new concept that offers short-term or daily fantasy sports games for real money. The concept is simple. You pick the day you want to play and set a fantasy lineup. If your picks perform well that day, you win. You can play for free or real money, and they award cold, hard cash nightly to the top-performing players. They've already awarded more than $10 million, and it's completely legal to play. DraftDay.com also has a new rapid-fire game that takes one minute to play with huge payouts. Just pick between a few choices of players and choose the ones that will score the most points. It's that easy. All you need is three of five correct to double your money. DraftDay is offering a special offer to Baseball America listeners, so be sure to head to DraftDay.com and enter the promo code BAPODCAST, and that'll start you off with a free instant cash bonus. If you like free money, head to DraftDay.com and use promo code BAPODCAST. Thanks again to DraftDay.com and all the guys over there. Ben, we're going to talk uh, prospects this week as we do every week, and we have a a pretty significant prospect call-up this week to uh, to talk about. So Xander Bogarts joins the Red Sox yesterday, maybe a little bit ahead of uh, of schedule, but but not by much. The speculation had been kind of rising about when would Bogarts come up for uh, for a while. It 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 seems interesting to me though that. It doesn't seem like Bogarts is coming up to be an everyday player. It seems like he's coming up to be a useful addition for the Red Sox. What do you think about that? Uh, I mean, I, I don't think it's going to stunt his development if, if that's a concern for people. I'm, I mean, I think either way this guy is going to be a star in the major leagues possibly as, as soon as next year. Um you know, you'd, you'd like to see him play every day, but at this point, they also, uh, I don't think either making the playoffs or, or winning the division is, is a lot. You bring him up, and I think that's the, the team that gives you the best chance to, uh, you know, to win that division and, and to make the playoffs. I think that he has enough flexibility where you can put him at shortstop, you can put him at third base, you could probably... Uh, you know, squeeze him in, into the outfield. I, you know, I know he hasn't played, you know, those other positions other than shortstop for for much, but I don't think it's going to take him that long to learn it. I think there's a, a few different ways you could try to squeeze his bat into the lineup uh, and have him playing, if if not every day, then have him playing, you know, somewhat on a on a consistent basis still. Well, and one of the things with that is that Stephen Drew, who's the the Red Sox uh, everyday. Uh, shortstop is really pretty weak against left-handers and obviously Bogarts that's his his natural platoon so so there's some possibilities there and I do think I know Middlebrooks has been Wilbur Middlebrooks has been really good since he came back from uh, from his demotion but it also makes some sense that that Bogarts could play some there 
it's something that is a position. He's played some third base this year. He said, I mean, it's not that if you're playing shortstop, moving over to third's not that hard. We saw Manny Machado do it basically on the job training last year in a pennant race. And really his, his addition made the, uh, the Orioles defense much, much better pretty much from the day he showed up. So yeah, I don't think that's really that, that much of a concern. And I do think his versatility is, is going to be a big help, especially the reality is, is he's replacing Brock Holt on the roster. If you ask me, which of the two guys is going to be able to help the Red Sox uh, more in the last month and a half of the season, I'm going to go with, with Bogarts, but yeah, I also agree. I don't think that this is a harm for him long-term as far as his development because you're only talking about you're taking away – if you say that he's going to play even every third day up there and he's going to play every day down in AAA, well, you're talking about the difference of maybe ten, eight, ten games. Yeah, I mean, the season's almost – if he stays in the minor leagues the rest of the season, exactly, he's going to miss a couple of weeks. So and Not only that, but I think you could argue that the taste of getting the taste of what the major leagues are like and facing major league pitching might be equivalent. One game in the majors of that might be the equivalent of, of three AAA games, especially when he's played. It's not like he was called up AAA last week or anything. He's been in AAA for, uh, you know, uh, almost a half season. So you're talking about a situation where, in this case, he's – yeah, I agree. This is not really going to be a, a – this is a case where trying to win now doesn't really uh, mortgage the future in any way, shape, or form and can also give a boost to a team that, that might need it right now because they've they've kind of been scuffling a little bit. The other thing that stood out to me, and I wrote about this yesterday in a little write-up on, on, on Bogart's coming up, is short of on position players, we may not see another call-up as significant as Bogarts prospect wise at the rest of the year, just because I mean, for one thing, Bogarts is one of the best prospects in all of baseball. But the other is, is that the other guys who kind of could fit in that category are either further away or really the only other guy I think you could kind of, the only two guys who have a chance who've been in double A and, and are in the same level as, as Bogarts as prospect, Miguel Sano and Francisco Lindor, I think it's less likely that either of those guys are going to come up because for one big reason that I don't know necessarily in the twins case doesn't matter. They're not, they're not playing to win right now. So starting the service clock for Sano versus the taste of him getting uh, some big league time, probably better off to just wait and let him come to spring training next year. And then in Lindor's case, you'd probably don't bring him up. He's a, unless you have an injury or something where you need help in the middle infield. Do you think we see either of those guys, or is there someone else that you see that could be a, a very prominent call-up over the next uh, couple of weeks as we head into September? No, I mean, I don't think either of those guys are, are going to come up. Um, you know, we talked about it a little bit before, but I could see the Pirates potentially bringing up, not on the position side, but as a pitcher, bringing up Jamison Tyone and having him help out Probably not in the starting rotation. I, I don't know that they even necessarily would need him in that role, but just to come up and if they need him to pitch innings either down the stretch uh, or or even in the postseason, possibly put him on the postseason roster, similar to the way the Rays used David Price a few years ago. I could see them uh, bringing him up. I could see a role. You know, he's not in the same caliber as as Bogarts as as a prospect. But, in, I mean, you could bring up Billy Hamilton also if you're Cincinnati 
and not even not even as a, a hitter, <laughs> just bring him up in September and just use his legs. I think there would be value in that if you're basically on the fringe. If if you're if you have like the division title locked up, if you're you know if they were in a position like the Braves were, that would be a, a little bit or that would be a lot different. But if you're the Reds and you're right on the borderline of of missing the playoffs, where something. Uh, you know, as as marginal as you know, Billy Hamilton's speed can provide an edge for you. I think that's something you have to consider too. Oh, I think so, absolutely. I think they should have brought him up last year when they were getting ready for the playoffs, and they were in a situation where they pretty much had a playoff spot locked up long before uh, the end of the season. But in, in Hamilton's case, I think you want to bring him up to both help you get to the playoffs and also because I think he's very much a weapon on a on a roster in the playoffs because. The reality of it is, is that his speed is something that's just hard to find. You throw on top of that also, Shinshu Chu is their center fielder. I, I don't know. Dusty has not been someone to kind of move him around. I mean, even when they have a guy who, who may be a better uh, center fielder in the lineup. But but the reality of it is, is that it does also make sense from the standpoint of, of bringing Billy Hamilton in to run late in the games and then maybe stay in as a, uh, as a defensive replacement in center field as well. Uh, another guy I'd be interested to see. I don't think we're going to see him come up, but but Archie Bradley, you know, if the if the Diamondbacks needed a, an an extra arm, could be a useful guy. I, I would kind of say, I'd see it's more likely that we might get to see Taiwan Walker before too long. And, you know, we could say, okay, we're going to wait till 2014. But as I think we've talked on this podcast before, the one thing that you have with the the Mariners is is that they've got a lot of young pitchers who you would figure they're going to try to start working into that rotation in the next, uh, you know, early next year at the latest, it'd be useful to kind of get a, a, one of those or two of those guys up, especially in, again, the case of the Mariners, you're not playing for anything necessarily right now. So it, it would be, he, he Walker has a full year basically of, of double a time and some triple a time on top of that. Uh, so it's not something where you can say, well, he may not be you know ready for that in any way, shape or form. I, in fact, talking to Taiwan Walker this year, he made the point himself of saying, no, 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 I'm ready uh, this year. And if you'd asked me last year, the answer would have been no, I wasn't ready. So uh, I'd kind of be interested to see. Maybe we get to see him in September as well. But as far as guys making a uh, uh, an impact in, in pennant races and all, uh, I do think that Hamilton is <laughs> in a in a limited role has a chance to be as, as useful as almost anyone because of uh, of just the way he could be used. You know, you put him on first base late in the game, and at the least, you you get them calling pitch outs. You get the pitcher uh, worrying about his slide step and all that. And more than that, he very well could be standing on second or third very soon thereafter. So it, it'll be kind of interesting to see that. Now, one guy I'll be interested to see if we're going to see, and, and the Astros have come out and said we're not going to see him at least until – the AAA season is complete, and the playoffs are complete because it looks like that uh, that that they're going to be involved in them. But in Oklahoma City is uh is George Springer, who's making a run at 40-40, which I, we went back and looked, and, and we can't find an example of 40-40 uh, among a minor leaguer. I, I always hesitate to say that it's never happened because that means that I'm saying that the 3-I league in 1912 didn't have them, and it's very unlikely, but some of the records from those leagues from way, way, way back then are a little tougher to find and, you know, and document. But uh, 
uh, it's going to be the first time in, in modern in the modern era if he does get it. He's at the last at this time as recording it, Springer has 35 homers, 39 steals. But do you think we're going to see Springer come up? And do you think that we should see Springer come up this year? If, if I was the Astros, I would not bring him up. I don't see there's clearly nothing that they're. I mean, they've already at this point clinched being under 500, which is amazing. <laughs> uh, they're not far do, away from clinching uh, the Carlos Rodon sweepstakes. Uh, you know, heading into September. No, they. There's really nothing to play for. I didn't see the game last night, but I looked at the box score in the third inning. And they had, I think they were already down 13 to one to uh, the range. Yeah, that was a uh, 16 to five final. All right. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just, they're a, a brutal, brutal team. I, I could understand wanting to, you know, as an Astros fan, wanting to see something that's, you know, actually worth watching <laughs> at the major league level. Cause right now there's not much there, but I don't see the point in, in bringing him up now, uh, putting him on the 40-man roster, starting his clock already, I don't see any benefits to doing that. And in fact, I, I see more benefits to just trying to lose as many games as possible. I think that that's what the, the draft incentivizes. The new CBA incentivizes it even more by saying that now, not only if you are a really bad major league team, not only are you going to be rewarded in the draft, but you're also going to be rewarded doubly so in the international market where you're going to start off with the biggest international bonus pool. And if they ever go to an international draft, I'm sure it'll be uh, done the same way where you'll, the team with the worst record is going to have the first pick in the international draft too. So for right now, I think it makes a lot of sense for them to keep Springer in the minor leagues, I mean, sure, if, if he was on a team like, uh, I mean, the Red Sox have a center fielder or, or, you know, the Tiger, I'm looking at some of these playoff teams. If there was a team that needed an outfielder to come up, maybe like say even the Pirates, for, they can just put him in right field. I mean, the team like that could certainly just... My Gregory it. Polanco gambit that they have not done. Yeah, and, it's, and you can argue that Springer is more ready now. I mean, he, I, he looks like he is big league ready. I do have questions about whether more advanced major league pitching is going to take advantage of some of those uh, holes in his swing. It hasn't hurt him at all to this point in the minor leagues, even though the strikeout totals are, are high. It is still a red flag for me, but I mean, the performance is hard to argue with at this point, And he's done it at, uh, you know, every level up, up through triple a and just dominated, put himself in discussion for minor league player of the year. But for right now, I mean, yeah, if they were on the cusp of a, a postseason berth, absolutely bring him up, try to get to the playoffs. I think he'd be a boost for the team. But for right now, I think it makes more sense to keep him down and try to, you know, look at the long term more so than, all right, well, this guy could help us, you know, win some meaningless games for the next month and a half when I, if I were them, I would be trying to lose as many games as possible. Well, they're, they're, they're handling that pretty well. And the one thing that jumps out to me, and we're, we're in basically – you want to call it year two or year three of the Astros complete teardown. The one thing, and you see at the minor league, at the minor league level, the Astros have way more talent, way more talent than, than they had last year, than they had the year before that. And I mean, if you go back three years, they were as barren as anyone in the minor leagues. The thing that has not happened yet at the big league level is 
it's what's interesting is is that usually, and you see this with the uh, with the the Marlins tear down jobs is that okay? So you tear down a team. And then you kind of sort through your prospects and find out which guys are guys you can kind of depend on long term and which guys aren't. And you kind of move on. Okay, we got to fill that hole. We got to fill that hole. What stands out to me about the Astros is is that this Astro team is you know is awful. I mean, there's no other way to put it. They're as we stand, they're 41 and 83. That that's that's along along the lines of historically awful. But if you look at this team. And you say, okay, so which guys have they sorted through? And you say that these are guys who you can count on long term. You have Jason Castro at catcher. You maybe have Chris Carter at DH. I mean, I'll, that's probably a stretch. He has hit 23 home runs. He's also he, he does walk a good bit. He also strikes out at a at a heroic rate, 165 strikeouts right now in uh in 448 plate appearances, and he's hitting 214. Well. Beyond that, you got a Jose Altuve, who is a useful fifth or sixth guy on your lineup, but not, you know, if he's the third best guy in your lineup, you're you're really probably uh, overmatched, considering he's posted one uh, OPS plus of league average 100 in three years, and he's not doing that this year. But they keep they're sorting through a lot of young guys. I don't know if necessarily though if any of the guys who they really are going to be counting on long term. Maybe if you squint, just you know, Jonathan Villar at, at shortstop. Maybe if you, if they get lucky, LJ Hose in the outfield. Is there anyone else in the lineup that you look at and say, okay, to me, I'll give you, I'll give you Jason Castro, absolutely. I'll give you Jose Altuve as he could be, you know, he's not a problem. So you know, it's not a problem. You got to replace him in the lineup necessarily. Is there anyone else that they're playing that they've brought up? Is there anyone that you say, okay, I think that guy is going to be uh, a regular for them when they're good? Nah, I mean, I I could see Dominguez maybe being in there at third base, but I don't, I, you know, I really like his defense. I don't, I don't think he's going to hit enough to be someone who you, you at least feel comfortable being an everyday player. But no, that's I mean, all the talent in in the system is in the minor leagues right now. And yeah, I mean, they they take criticism for say, oh, they are not paying. You see all these things about how they're not paying anybody over, you know, other than I think it's like Eric Bedard more than a million dollars or something like that. And and they're trying to lose this year. I mean, so what? (laughs) Why? Why would you not do that? I mean, they're clearly in a better position to contend for the postseason at some point down the road uh, this year than they were a year ago. I think they're moving in the right direction. I mean, yeah, you could say go out and, you know, sign some free agents or, or try to acquire some more major league talent or bring up Springer right now to try to help you get to what, I mean, 75 wins? Oh, no, wins. 75 is long gone. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I mean... Yeah, even at the start of the season, this team, you look at it and say, okay, I, I, if you added two more free agents who are solid, you know, and we're two more Carlos Pena's really is what we're talking about. Two more, because no, no top-notch free agent is going to sign with the Astros right now, barring a, a massive overpay, uh, which they're not going to do. Yeah, you're really we're saying, okay, this is the difference between 55 or 60 wins and, and 70 or 75. And... Is there a value to that? I know John Manuel in our office value argues that there is. I'm kind of a little bit more in line with you that I don't think 
you know, I don't think if you're a Twins fan that you're at the end of the season that you're going to say, you know, well, it wasn't good, but the, the Twins did get to 71 wins this year, so I feel a lot better about things than I would if, they, if they'd end up with 61. Um, uh, winning 60 games is, is more valuable than winning 80 games. I mean, 80 games gets you <laughs> – you don't, you don't get in the postseason. You get – Maybe uh, you know the 16th or so pick in in the draft, and it's now you you don't get a protected pick. All of a sudden, you get a worse draft pick. You get uh, less money to spend internationally. The way the rules are set up, I would I I think you should absolutely just try to lose as many games as possible and make no apologies for it. I mean that's the way the rules are set up. If you want to real if you really are committed to building through scouting and player development. You have to look at the rules and say, well, all right, the way we can get, the way we can help our team the most <laughs> is not to win 75 games. It's to win 55 games or 60 games and get the best draft pick possible and get the most international money possible to put ourselves in position to win at some point in the future because 75 wins or, or 80 wins doesn't really do anything for us. And it, do you think something needs to be changed? Because yeah, I agree with you. It is set up now that, and it's not like, I wouldn't say that the rules have changed completely on this. It's been set up like this for a long, long time. If you say, why are the Rays good now? There are a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is, is that they got to pick at the top of the draft. And when they pick at the top of the draft, they hit on guys like David Price. So, and you realize, you, you look at it. <laughs> or the Nationals. You know, yeah, the Nationals who hit on here, you know, here's Strasburg, here's Harper. Hitting the getting the number one pick in the draft or, you know, the number two or number three pick in the draft is in many years a lot more valuable than picking tenth. It's and that that gap has grown because now there's not really the reality of it is is when you went back pre CBA, there were guys who were falling further into that, you know, there may have been a top five talent who fell to 15 because he, of his bonus demands. That doesn't happen anymore. With that not mm-hmm. happening anymore, it's much more so that, yes, I mean, you look, I, I just cite the Rays because the Rays are an example to me of a team that when they drafted at the top of the draft, their drafts were amazing. And then they started winning, and since they've drafted at the back of the draft, they haven't added anyone impact from the draft. They've barely added anyone who's played in the big leagues. So... I mean, it, there is, I don't think that the Rays suddenly, that they're, you know, scouting and player development suddenly lost the feel for, for who they're, you know, who a player is. The reality is, though, is, is that if you draft at the back end of the draft in the first round, it's a lot tougher than when you draft one, two, or three. And in the Astros case, if you say, where, have, where are the impact players? I don't think, I think you could argue that the Astros have not acquired one impact player, future impact player, in any of the trades that they've made as they traded away uh, their, their big league talent. But they do have impact players in their minor league system. And the reason they do is, is that Carlos Correa was a top draft pick. Mark Appel, the number one pick in this past year's draft. They're going to, as we said, they're almost assuredly barring an injury to Carlos Rodon and barring an amazing run by the Astros. They're going to be drafting Carlos Rodon, you know, probably number one overall next June. And the reality is, is that Rodon is, should be every bit of an impact player. Those are three impact guys that they got because of picking at the very top of the draft. 
and that si- the system is set up to do that right now. Now, you know, it's it, it's funny. That's the you could argue that's the only good news that the Angels have right now. If you look at the Angels roster, it's it's locked up in massive contracts to guys who are not performing at the level that those contracts uh, you would expect with those contracts. They don't. Their farm system is pretty barren. But the reality is, is that the Angels now, if it's almost they're the they're to me the, the example of what you're talking about right now they're sitting there and depending on how the final month plus of the season goes they could finish anywhere from if they really fell apart they could they could have the second third pick in the draft probably third if they really fell apart if you go in another direction though if they have a good final month they could end up ahead of the giants the padres the rockies the twins the Brewers, the even maybe the Blue Jays, they could end up with the the tenth, twelfth pick in the draft. It could be that, that would be awful for them. <laughs> that, that yeah, would be- no, I, you you made a great point about you know the the draft has always been <laughs> set up this way, but in the past, like you said, you could have somebody, you could be picking at you know in, in the second round. Or, or the third round, and you could still get Will Myers because <laughs> he falls to you in the draft because of his bonus demands. Or you could have, you know, it, w- it was easier to, uh, you know, maybe work out a, a pre-draft deal, have a, a prospect uh, in high school throw out a, a letter that says, oh, don't draft me, I'm going to college. And then he goes to a team in, uh, you know, the end of the first round, and he signs for a few million dollars. So you could have a guy slip that way. With the way the draft pools are set up now, there's still some, there's still flexibility, there's still some wiggle room there. But yeah, for the most part, guys aren't, uh, you know, the guy who is, you know, a top five talent on the board, which is generally going to be your, uh, not surefire, but your your high probability, high upside guys aren't going to be slipping down to the second round or the third round of the draft or, or to the to the end of the first round. It just doesn't happen anymore. Uh, so with that change in the CBA, like you're talking about, yeah, for a team like the Astros or, or for a team like the Angels, you know, now there's even even more incentive to 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 just lose. And I don't think there's they should make any apologies for it either, because that's the way the system is set up, uh, not just on the draft side, but but internationally, too, which, you know, f- uh, on the draft side, I can understand it because you draft Steven Strasburg. Uh, you want to talk about, you know, competitive balance. I mean, you know, the, the primary purpose of the draft, I think, is just to just for owners to be able to control their cost, which it does significantly. Uh, but at the other hand, yeah, it, it does provide some uh, some parity, I suppose. If, if you draft Steven Strasburg and, and he can get there for you quickly or even uh, somebody like Harper or, or Machado who can get there quickly and, and immediately have an impact on your major league team. Whereas internationally, you know, I don't, I don't really understand the, the sliding scale for doing that based on uh, winning percentage when best case scenario, you're signing an international player. And if he's like jerks and Profar or, or Xander Bogarts, he's going to be there in four years. <laughs> if he's just, you know, a more typical international signing who, and I mean typical of a player who even reaches the major leagues, you're talking about a timetable of, I mean, probably six or, or seven years. I mean, it seems like uh, Wilmer Flores has, has been a prospect for 
the last decade or so. <laughs> but really, he's I think he's what 21 or 22 yeah. years old now. He's just burst onto the scene well, when he was 16 years old in the Appy League. So for them, I mean, now there's more incentive on the international side too. I, I think that's that's kind of a questionable rule. I mean, I don't think any team really is financially, you know, whether they're a, a low revenue team or a high revenue team or, or they've, they have a great major league team or a poor one. I don't see why one team should have $2 million to start out. Another one should have $5 million to start out. Any team can afford to spend, you know, three or, or three and a half, four million, whatever it is on the international market to be competitive for players. Well, no, we saw, and that's one thing I was going to bring up before we move on to another topic. Is it's like you look at the Astros this year. The Astros had that that uh, signing. You know, they had the the largest international pool this year, but I, it didn't seem like. I don't feel like when you know, if you say who is the story of the international market this year, it's the Cubs. Is 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 there something there? There's usefulness to that, but are there years where having a four something million dollar? You know, you you wrote it before the signing period began you may not be able to even use all that right yeah i mean it's, it's, exactly i don't think i don't think you need i think the cut or the astros are about five million dollars in their pool i actually agree with their initial strategy which was again to trade money and they you know turned into ronald torres who is a helpful prospect for them uh, you know i don't think you need to spend five million dollars to be able to find good international players uh, there's so much talent you can find for cheap out there. Yeah, for the some of the higher profile guys who are more you know famous players. Yeah, you're gonna have to to pay higher price for them. But yeah, you don't need to spend five million dollars for it. But again, even just having that bigger bonus pool gives you more flexibility to to trade for somebody like Torres or to include that money in a trade for other prospects or as a like a sweetener in, in a major league uh, trade that we're making a trade on on that level too. So either way, it, it helps. I mean, in the Astros case, I think they're, they were thinking that they were going to sign the Venezuelan catcher, Jose Herrera, uh, who was in our top 10. Some teams had him, you know, one of the top five players in their board. Uh, didn't work out for them, but it's having that, having that bonus pool gives you a lot more flexibility, a lot more freedom uh, to operate in the international market. Yeah. So, well, we got some questions I do want to uh, uh, get to. One of the first ones, it kind of speaking of the Astros, uh, we had a question uh, both – I'm going to – hey, we had a question to our podcast at Baseball America, so I'm answer it from there. We also have it on Twitter. But So Reggie uh, asks – Red uh, from Afton, Wyoming, asks – he said, can you talk about some of the talent in Mexico that can be purchased by big league teams and how the two players obtained by the Astros fare as potential prospects? And how do stats in Mexico compare to, say, Cuba or Japan and how they translate into careers here in the U.S.? So what, what, what Reggie's asking about is the Astros did sign a, uh, uh, a pair of players from Mexico in the last week. I would warn you, uh, and I, you're Ben, you're our international expert, but this is more about, you know, this is not guys, these are not a pair of guys who you expect to see uh, playing in Houston next year. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even expect to see him in the prospect handbook. It's, I mean, these are guys you sign as like minor league free agents and they just happen to come out of the Mexican league. 
you know, they Jafet had Jafet Amador and Leo Harris are Leo Harris are the uh, the two. By the way, just pass yeah, along the names. They had they had solid numbers in in Mexico, but um, you know, it's Amador is uh, I don't know if you do a Google image search for him, but uh, he's. <laughs> I think he's listed at 315 pounds. That looks very accurate. Um, you know, he, he I, has I also respect that he's actually listed at it because you don't see that very often. No. <laughs> see a 315-pounder listed at like 250. And yeah. I mean, I'm – the last 75 pounds. So he – you know, these guys are – you know, they're okay. They're more organizational types. They just happen to – come from Mexico, you know, really it's, it's building a relationship with the Mexican league team with Mexico city, um, you know, and, and Roberto Mansoor, who's, you know, one of the more powerful people in, in the Mexican league and, and controls a lot of talent for 16 year old players who, uh, who really are prospects or, you know, that 16, 18 year old range. Uh, you know, this is the team that had Julio Arias. They had uh, Roberto Osuna you know, you want to deal with the Mexican league team, you want to sign a Mexican player. Most of the time, uh, you know, there's a few exceptions. I think like Sebastian Valle was not signed through a Mexican league team. I think he was signed, uh, you know, what they call signing direct, uh, which is if you're not with a Mexican league team, but the majority of players who sign out of Mexico go through a Mexican league team, which the reason, well, one of the reasons for that is that if you are a Mexican player and you sign directly with a major league team, and you don't go through the Mexican league and you get released and you want to go back and play in Mexico, you can't play there anymore. They won't let you play in Mexico, uh, which may seem extreme to some people, but that's what they do to protect their talent and to protect the league. So, all right, I get it. But yeah, with, with these signings, it's, it's more so to build a relationship uh, with Mexico city to build a relationship with Mansoor and to make sure uh, you know, that they have a, you know, that they're in good standing with them, I guess to say, going forward more so than, you know, these guys are going to be difference makers in, uh, in Houston at some point, or, or even, you know, really, you know, big time prospects to look at going forward. Um, one thing, I, I kind of the answer to the second part, when you say, how do the stats translate? Mexico is a very, very offensive, uh, league. Uh, the best way to put that is, is that, the uh, the league leader in on base percentage this year was right at 500. The uh, batting leader at the end of the year I think hit 410. So uh, seeing a 400 hitter in the Mexican league in the U.S. minor leagues is is almost it, it well it is unheard of. I think you have to go back pretty much like to maybe Gary Reedus to in and that's a long long time ago to remember one in Mexico it's not that unusual. Um, the other well, the best the best way to put it is that, I mean if you look at <laughs> Remember Ruben Rivera? I mean, he's 39 years old, and he is one of the best hitters in the Mexican League <laughs> for the last several years. And he's put up, uh, I think he's hit over, probably hit about like 330 or so on average with over 400 on base. He slugged 600 several years. And again, this is Ruben Rivera who's about to turn 40 years old. So, <laughs> um, Luis Torero uh, led the league in slugging this year. Juan Miranda, who, you know, these names may ring a bell, was right up there at the top. Uh, Barbaro Canizares, John Lindsay, Ruben Mateo, Chris Roberson, Randy Ruiz, and Ruben Rivera, like you mentioned. Now that So to give you an idea, 
it, again, it's not like that. The, the Mexican league, it's listed as a triple A league. I think that may be actually a little strong for, for what it is. It's, it's a more veteran league. There's no doubt about that. Um, the, the amazing thing to me is, is that you'll see guys like, I love like looking at the ages of the Mexican league. Like uh, you said, Ruben Rivera's 39. He was in the top 20 in OPS. Willis Atenez uh, was 40 and he was sixth in the league in the OPS. Uh, 42-year-old Charmal Adriana was in the top 30 in OPS. You know, it's, it's, it's an older league. If you said, what is the average age of a Mexican leaguer, I would say it's, you know, right, it's closer to 30 than anything. And the key thing of these signings are is that these are are, are are very inexpensive signings probably for the Astros as well from the standpoint of the Mexican League season is in the playoffs. So as your teams are eliminated from the playoffs, then this is true, very true for a lot of these guys who basically have split Mexican League independent league careers. So what they do is, is they're they're not an affiliated ball. They go play in the Mexican League, make decent money there for the uh, for the Mexican League season. And because it starts earlier and finishes earlier, you then go along and you see it turn around to where, okay, when that season ends, you go to the Atlantic League or somewhere and you pick up another paycheck for another two months. And so you can kind of extend the amount of time that you can play baseball and receive a paycheck for the year. Well, in Amador's case and, and, and in Harris' case here, their season's over. And the Astros are battling for playoff spots in AAA, AA, and high A. So that's important to them. So these guys are guys who may, may be able to help. And if you end up getting something more out of it, then, hey, that's just a bonus. And I, I guess that's the way I'd put it, is that I, I don't think you expect that you're going to get more than that out of it. But if you do, it's a nice bonus. Yeah, and, and look, I think there is, you know, is, is Mexico, um, you know, kind of a, a source of talent, I think. It's not that these guys are, are specifically what they're looking at, but, I, you know, there is a lot of good, young Mexican talent that's been coming over to the major leagues more, or coming over the minor leagues certainly more more recently. You see guys like Urias and uh, with the Dodgers, Manny Benuelos, Luis Heredia, uh, Roberto Osuna. I mean, what do these guys all have in common is, is that they really have good feel for pitching. I mean, the stuff is you know, varies from, from guy to guy, but you look just at most of the pitchers who sign out of the Mexican or sign with major league teams from the Mexican league or from Mexico or with Mexican league teams. Generally, these guys have really good feel for pitching. They grow up pitching in games. It's, it's, there's organized baseball in Mexico that they play. Uh, They're out there on the mound, you know, working through, you know, multiple innings facing seven, you know, facing, you know, the, a lineup multiple times over uh, compared to sometimes the Dominican Republic where they might just be out there throwing an inning or two at a time or, or even if you want to call it an inning or two because sometimes they're not even facing hitters. It's it's just bullpens almost that they're throwing. So uh, there's, there's a lot of good young talent in Mexico, especially on uh, the pitching side. Uh, so I think it's this to me says it's more of a, a relationship builder for uh, grabbing up some of that young talent in the future, more so than what these guys specifically can do uh, for the Astros. So uh, some more questions we have staying on staying on the Astros uh, angle. Bijo for uh, Hall of Fame uh, on Twitter. Bijo for H O F, which is uh, Danito Burgess. Uh, ask, what do y'all know about Teoscar Hernandez? Seemed like he's starting to realize his tools. It, I, that's a good way to put it. I, I think you're, you're, when you're talking about Hernandez, you are talking about a very toolsy player who 
for a good while has not been the tools have not been translating and the, you are starting to see more and more signs that that they are translating i got to watch them actually in person this year um um, when, on my fun Byron Buxton trip, and I got to see uh, Quad Cities. And it, this year, now he's hitting 264, 325, 429. Uh, a lot of strikeouts still. You know, the power's starting to come in, and that's not, I don't think, a particularly easy park to uh, to hit home runs in. But, Ben, you know, are you are you a Teoscar fan, or are you a little bit more skeptical? Yeah, I mean, uh, you got to like the tools. I mean, it's he can run, he can throw, he can hit for power. It's just... You know, the bat is going to be, I don't think it's going to be something where you see him suddenly flying through the farm system. It's, you know, it's the swing, you know, it still gets long. There's, uh, you know, approach issues that he's going to have to tighten up, but the tools are there and it's not like he's, uh, you know, it's not like he's like Anthony Hewitt or or one of these guys like, uh, uh, you know, like a Reggie Abercrombie or somebody like that who has tools and, and, completely has no clue how to apply them to the games. He seems like he is making strides in the right direction, being able to take those tools to the game. Um, You know, I don't know if it's, you know, center field or, or or right field is, is where he's going to end up. Probably probably uh, depends on on just how big he gets, but I think that the tools are there and I think it's, it's starting to, uh, translate for him. I mean, this is a guy they just basically signed as like uh, almost as like a minor league roster filler to to put on their their DSL team. He was a real cheap sign, but he he actually did have good tools when he signed. He just wasn't really a a known guy when he signed. But it's the tools are always there, and I think he's starting to starting to bring it to the field with a little bit more frequency. <laughs> Which is another example of the how when you're scouting internationally spending you don't need to spend five million dollars that's a good way to put no. it because that there are the number of stories out there of guys who uh who uh who really pop up because it's really hard to project 16 year olds it's a it's a pretty lengthy list um moving on we got another question here from uh japers 413 uh jp schwartz asks who are your top five candidates for minor league baseball player of the year at this point. So we're, we are, I, I think we, without giving anything away, we can say that we have been definitely discussing that in the office. Cause we have our, our player of the year awards, not that far away. Um, and some interesting discussions this year. Uh, there's some, there's a number of guys who are, are solid candidates. We're obviously not going to give away who we, we haven't even made a decision yet. So we couldn't give anything no, away yeah. if, we, if we tried. Um, but I, I think without, you know, Again, without giving anything away, George Springer's making a run at 40-40, as we talked about. That hasn't been done. That's He's done it at AA, AAA. I know he's done it in the Texas League and the PCL, but his parks that he plays in are not particularly uh, offensive, especially by the standards of those leagues. It's not like he's playing in Reno or Las Vegas. Um, Byron Buxton's having a, a, a pretty monster season in, in low A and now high A, and throw on top of that, he plays you know, at, as pretty much every scout who sees him says, uh, a major league gold glove caliber center field generally as well. Still has a couple of things to work on out there compared to a, a 28 year veteran, you know, year old veteran or something. But you got those guys, Archie Bradley's having a great year. Uh, really on top of that, Rosal Herrera in Asheville, although he is repeating the level, but for a shortstop to be producing like he is, 
Uh, Carlos Correa having a great year in, in Quad Cities. Xander Bogart's pretty amazing year. What he did as a as the youngest player in the Eastern League, then moved up being the youngest player in the International League. Ben, you know, you want to throw out any other guys who who kind of fit into the uh, into the discussion? No, I mean I think you got most. Like you said, it's the names you mentioned are pretty hitter heavy list this year. Um, you know, Michael Franco has has been having an outstanding year too. Absolutely, uh, Miguel Sano. But it's yeah, yeah, so no, definitely another guy. Uh, you know, Javier Baez has has really come on pretty strong this year. It's it's more to me. It's I I I think it's probably going to be a hitter from that group. I mean, Bradley is having a good year, and I love Bradley, and I think he's the best pitching prospect in baseball. I take him over anybody else, but um, just the, the the in terms of a minor league player of the year award, the walks are, are still a concern. Uh, for me, I, I think eventually he'll iron that out. But for me, it's it's got to come from from one of the position players. You know, the the names that really jump out for me are Springer and Buxton, two guys who are doing it at a premium position. The you, it, the numbers are are unbelievable, and then you look at the other stuff. You know, the defense and the base running that they bring too, and it's you know. You know, premium position, uh, premium defense at that position. Uh, you know, they're, they're stealing bases. They're giving you value uh, as as not just a hitter and not just as a defender, but as a runner as well. To me, I mean, a long term, who would I take? Buxton, no question about not, it. Not, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not even debating that one with you. And I there's agree. No, I mean, I, there's a lot of guys who I'd also take ahead of Springer. Uh, just as a prospect, in, including Archie Bradley, but it, when it comes to a, a player of the year discussion, it's it's more heavily weighted toward performance, and it's, it's not that Springer lacks tools. By I mean, he's, he's some of the best bat speed and, and some of the best tools in the minor leagues, um, but in in terms of performance, uh, I think Springer is is right up there with with Buxton. Obviously, as a prospect, I I, I would take Buxton over over anybody though. Know? That's the debate we are having in the office uh, these days. I wouldn't say as we speak. We're debating it on the podcast right now, but we have been having that discussion. we got a decision to make. And, uh, again, I do think that you can make a pretty good case for Bradley this year. I think if you're talking about pitcher, it's going to be hard. Because, again, when we do our minor league player of the year, it's not solely the minor league player having the best year. Um, Chris Colabello, who I – have a, a soft spot for personally he's a former indie leaguer who's made it to the majors this year chris colabell is having as good a year as anyone is in the minors really you could argue the only the only knock against him is he's been up in the majors some but uh he's up uh, he's in the top five and i think batting average on base and i think maybe slugging as well but our minor league player of the year award is a combination of what it's basically the best year in the minors by a top prospect. Chris Colabello is going to be a big, he already is a big leaguer, but he's not a top prospect. He's, he's, he's 10 years older than Buxton, I believe. So that's, that's a little, puts that in perspective as far as why is he not a top prospect, obviously. Well, so if you look at our track record, we, we take pride in the fact that our track record of guys we pick as minor league player of the year. If you look back at it, there are very few misses and the misses are guys who you generally have, solid long-term careers there's not as as much of an impact player as the as the hits but 
so there are a lot of times we'll get questions, you know, well, why didn't you pick this guy? This guy's numbers are a little bit better than this guy's. Well, there's a lot of context that goes into it. I, it's not just who's the best prospect, because if that was the case, you know, Bryce Harper didn't win a, uh, you know, he's our number one prospect, but he didn't win an award. You know, he didn't win our minor league player of the year award. But it is a top prospect having the best year. And it's a, an interesting balance that goes into that. So thanks again to all the questions. Sorry we couldn't get to all of them, but we we have other things that we have to do here at uh, Baseball America today. But we, we thank you again for the download. We'll be back again uh, next week with another Prospect Handbook podcast. Ben, thanks for all the, uh, the insight as always. Thanks also to our friends at DraftDay.com. DraftDay.com is a new concept that offers short-term or daily fantasy sports games for real money. The concept is simple. You pick the day you want to play and set a fantasy lineup. If your picks perform well that day, you win. You can play for free or real money, and they award cold, hard cash nightly to the top-performing players. They've already awarded more than $10 million, and it's completely legal to play. DraftDay.com also has a new rapid-fire game that takes one minute to play with huge payouts. Just pick between a few choices of players and choose the ones that will score the most points. It's that easy. All you need is three of five correct to double your money. DraftDay is offering a special offer to Baseball America listeners, so be sure to head to DraftDay.com and enter the promo code BAPODCAST, and that'll start you off with a free instant cash bonus. If you like free money, head to DraftDay.com and use promo code BAPODCAST. For Ben Badler, I'm J.J. Cooper. Thanks again for the download, and we'll talk to you next week.